Good Physics Day, everyone. I'm really excited about my guest today. He has connections to previous guests I've talked with on Physics Alive. He's published with Sam McKagan from Episode 2 and Louis Delaurier from Episodes 29 and 30. He's the original creator of the FET Interactive Simulations from Episode 5 with Ariel Paul. And back when I graduated from my undergraduate institution in 2001, he happened to win the Nobel Prize in Physics. But we're not even going to touch on that today. Instead, we're talking education. Carl Wyman holds a joint appointment as Professor of Physics and Professor of the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. He has done extensive experimental research in atomic and optical physics, but his current intellectual focus is now on undergraduate physics and science education. He has pioneered the use of experimental techniques to evaluate the effectiveness of various teaching strategies for physics and other sciences, and he served as Associate Director for Science in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Immediately after speaking with him, I needed to write down my thoughts, and here's what I wrote. Wow. Just wow. I'm having trouble processing what just happened. I followed Carl's work from afar for many years, and I've been impressed with and inspired by the scope and breadth of the work he and his many collaborators have done. So I came into this conversation with admiration and some nervousness. I had no idea, however, how it would feel to speak with an intellectual giant. That's the phrase that struck me as soon as the call ended. I sent, my, I, I sent a text to my wife and said, what he shares is on another plane of existence, and every response I had seemed to fall short. It was crazy. I am more awed by him now that I've talked to him. Almost every comment I made seemed to be followed with, well, that's not quite it, and I see it more like this. And every time I would find myself nodding and saying, yep, yeah, your version is way better than mine. And as the conversation progressed, I tried to piece together the new revelations I was making, and it was just too much for me. All right, that's enough of that. I'll share a few more reflections afterwards, but really, just listen to Dr. Wyman as he paints an image of the future. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm speaking with Carl Wyman, 2001 Nobel Laureate, Professor of Physics and Professor of the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University, and recipient of the 2020 EDAN Prize for uh, the world's largest prize in education. And I could go on and on sharing accolades and accomplishments, but we're here to talk about the future of physics and STEM education. So I am humbled and honored to speak with you, Carl. Uh, thank you for spending a little time with me and my audience of physics teachers today. I'm always happy to talk to physics teachers. I'd like to start with a moment of gratitude. Uh, I'm very interested to hear your answer to this next question because you have played this role for so many educators and researchers during your career, including previous guests on this podcast, such as Louis Delarier, Ariel Paul, and Sam McKagan. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in shaping your path? So to, to be honest, I don't really think of having, you know, really prominent mentors in, in my life. Uh, I mean, one that certainly had a, had a big influence was uh, Dan Kleppner at MIT, where as a really very early as an undergraduate, I got involved in uh, doing research in his atomic physics lab. Uh, and really, my education was almost entirely, or as much as I could make it, working on the research lab and not doing very much in classes. But, <laughs> you know, e even then, to be honest, the, the, you know, when I think back, what was the mentor for me wasn't Dan so much in particular, but really the whole research group, you know, the, mm. the interactions with the, there were some other undergraduates, but more the, the, uh, the graduate students and postdocs in the group. And I spent, you know, lots of time interacting with them, learning from them. And, you know, to be honest, that was the thing that I see kind of shaped me more than any any specific individuals uh, and you know there there's a variety of circumstances by that I had a my PhD thesis advisor who's 
you know, really famous and won a Nobel Prize. The fact is, at the time I started working with him, he was a very young, new, uh, let's say, very inexperienced assistant professor. And so, you know, he was learning, just learning how to be an advisor in the same, at the same time. So lot didn't have, I, I spend more of my time now kind of to be, to be blunt, thinking about what kind of advice and guidance would have been most helpful for me, you know, would have helped me avoid making them some of the mistakes I made in my career and, and trying to do that, you know, better for the, the students and postdocs that I've mentored. Well, and, and, and certainly, uh, you know, I, I think of, I think I had a similar experience growing up that I didn't, there weren't such strong role models in uh, the the career I was thinking of doing. I, I think partly because I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to go to go into. It was sort of an exploration into physics and into teaching. And, and but so many of my I think mentors and inspiration came from from books and from reading. So those resources are are so powerful as well. And I'm definitely looking forward to speaking with you today about some of those resources that um, that you've shared with the the education world. But to, to get into that, I'm. I'm always curious how researchers and educators find their way into physics education research. Uh, oftentimes, is usually not the first thing that they were doing. And in, in this case, you had great success in atomic and optical physics. And I can only assume that every research door was wide open for you, especially after receiving the Nobel Prize. Yet you pivoted to education research and have produced, I would say, Nobel-worthy uh, Nobel legacy here as well. And uh, in episode five of Physics Alive, I spoke with Ariel Paul, director of development for the FET project, and he recounted the origins of FET simulations, which began with a project in the early 90s called Physics 2000. And these were interactive simulations that you were using to help explain your research to students and faculty and classes in colloquia. Did your interest in education originate here or were the seeds of this interest planted at an earlier time? So actually, uh, my interest in education was from the beginning really connected with my physics research. And so, you know, you described my interest as pivoting and lots of people do or, or, you know, after I got the Nobel Prize switching to this, that's really not, not actually correct. Mm. I, I got involved in education, education research way before the Nobel Prize. And I like to joke, that's only when it's only after the Nobel Prize people start paying attention to it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, uh... but, in, but in fact, um, really uh, what led me in this path was in working in my uh, physics, atomic physics research program where I blast atoms with lasers and so on, I worked very closely with many graduate students. And I was very, I came to see there was a real fundamental puzzle, which is that uh, these students, student after student, uh, had done really well in all their physics courses. They wouldn't get into my lab at hand. But then starting to work in the research lab, they really couldn't do physics, uh, you know. And but, but then I learned and I realized, well, but it wasn't anything fundamentally flawed in them because after a couple of years working with me, they turned into good physicists. And so I started thinking, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> and really, uh, so to me, this was an, a, a research question. And I started digging into, okay, what do we know about learning of physics and learning to think like an expert? Uh, and that was, you know, 40 years ago or so. So for for many years, a couple of decades, actually, I had two parallel research groups, one doing the laser atomic physics and one studying the thinking and learning of first physics and then science more generally. But I've always kind of tended to have this focus on the aspect of learning to think like an expert, learning to think like, you know, to become a good physicist. Um, and so, yeah, so for me, they were, they were quite intertwined and it's, you know, been the last 10 years or so where for practical reasons and 
am, certain ambitions that I, I stopped doing my atomic physics research and focused just on the education stuff. But for many, many, de or some decades before that, I kind of did them both simultaneously. Going back to, to what you were saying there about uh, students coming into your into your research space and and not really being able to to dive in and think the the way uh, a, a, the, a physicist would think, yeah. You know, I I certainly think of uh, of classes uh, as almost wondering what what they prepare me for for sure. So certainly with the the introductory classes, if you're just taking it as a one off for some other major, maybe the goals will be different. But you know, thinking about what uh, teaching physics majors. Uh, you can then begin to think. Well, now there's this there's this longer arch where we're hoping to to train these these young men and women as as future physicists, whatever their their field may be. So, uh, what I, I guess I'm curious, what were some of the early things you started to to realize as you were you know thinking about that space? I mean, what I started realizing is is first, okay, people had been doing uh, research on teaching physics. And when I started, it was very early days, Lily McDermott, mm -hmm. Joe Riddish, mm -hmm. and Eric Mazur of, of really looking at what were people, students learning and not learning in the introductory physics, and then finding these ways that help them better where, you know, all kind of lumped under the, the umbrella of active learning, where they were just doing, you know, that, well, sitting there listening to somebody talk about provide information doesn't really give the person the, the I think of it as kind of cognitive tools <laughs> to look at a new situation and think about it like a physicist, you know, understand why it's working that way, predict what's going to happen, etc. cetera. Uh, and so, you know, over the years, I and others have, have really refined and developed those basic ideas. And now I'm really able, looking at, at research people have done it from cognitive psychology and brain research, and particularly on the development of expertise, combined with my own work of studying what does expertise really mean <laughs> in things like physics, to understand a lot better of really design principles and things that you have students do that are just much more effective at having them come to be able to think like physicists. But um, I'll get a dig into a little more detail here because what I'm also seeing is these are these aren't different or in some fundamental way they're they're not different whether you're doing the, you know, the one physics course a student will ever take to satisfy their science requirement or as a prerequisite for going into engineering, or if they're going to be, become a physicist, the, the real value of those courses or of that education and what you want to build into those courses is to be able to make decisions. And I think mm -hmm. this idea of, of, using learning to make decisions is a really critical one that doesn't get enough attention. So, you know, when, when we'll start with the physics major, it's <laughs> okay. And so we understand if they're going to be a physicist, we now, my group has really identified, there's a very specific set of decisions that people have a, a, a good physicist will make in solving a physics problem. We actually have 29 of them we buy that, that is pretty inclusive. And, and there are things like, okay, when you look at the new situation and, you know, and you've got a problem you wanna solve, deciding what are the important factors there and, and what isn't important, you know? And so, so a physicist will look at that and they'll think, oh, well, and, you know, energy and mass and, and those are important. The color of the car isn't important. <laughs> okay. And, and then you take from there, you know, deciding what information's really, you know, what concepts apply, what information you need, deciding how to, how to best seek out that information, 
deciding how reliable it is, what conclusions you can draw from it, okay, et cetera, for all 29 of them, um, down to, and I emphasize this one because it's so often neglected in courses, is you get an answer deciding what arguments can you use and, and additional information to test if that answer makes sense, okay? So these are things that you go through any physicist solving a real physics problem. They're making all of these decisions. You then go back and you look at it courses and you look at what, you know, what's a homework? What are they giving on homework problems? What are they giving on exams that are measuring? And, and basically, almost all of these decisions have been eliminated. <laughs> so they're not mm. practicing, they're not measuring mm. if they're learning them. But at the same token, I'd say, when you look at those decisions and you look at the, they're really what's valuable for knowing physics. And it's whether you know it just at the, you know, first semester mechanics level <laughs> or, the fourth year, you know, advanced quantum mechanics level. It's, it's looking at the situation and think making these kinds of decisions in terms of solving problems. This seems to be such an important place to, to, to start. You know, what, what is the purpose of the course going to be? Because before we can even start thinking about uh, what, what are the, the methods that we apply in the classroom, we have to be very clear what, what it is we're trying to accomplish. And uh, one of the, the things I really think a lot about is um, I, I often teach intro courses for uh, for students who are going to go into some kind of health science. So that that's one of my particular interests. And and I've, I've learned so much about the world of medicine and how physics applies to it. And there's, there's just so much I could, if I could start my career over, I could see going into to medical physics possibly, but it, yeah. it's really fascinating to see all those connections between medicine and the human body. And I've thought a lot about, you know, how to bring in those applications into the classroom. But I think you strike on something deeper that it's, it's not just about applying the physics the right way. It's, it's about how to make decisions with authentic types of questions and centering on that part. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and it, so it's, you know, those students who maybe go on to become doctors to make, have them realize, okay, there's certain kinds of problems, certain, you know, not everything, but certain contexts in which, okay, physics is really useful for guiding the decisions you're going to make, uh, you know, really simple ones are what kind of, you know, shielding you need for that x-ray machine. Hmm. <laughs> You're gonna, you know, and, but in any case, um, yeah, so I, I think it's really critical for physics teachers to first think about what are the decisions they would really like students to be able to make better <laughs> in their future, whatever it is, using physics ideas and once you've decided on that, then in some sense, it's easy. You say, well, okay, they need to make these kind of decisions. How do people learn to make better decisions? Well, they practice them and they practice them and they get feedback on that practice and then they practice some more. You know, it's not so different from learning how to hit a golf ball better or, or kick a soccer ball, you know? Um, and I think now we understand that's not an accident. It, these all things, these all have to do with if you practice something very intently, your brain changes the connections in there to do to be better at doing it. Uh, and that's as true for knowing how to kick a soccer ball where you think, well, it's all physical. No, it's mostly mental. It's, it's how the nerves are hooked up uh, to thinking about okay, how do I, what, what's the physics? How do I use physics to decide about certain things in my life? So, it, and now, now getting us to, to think a little bit about how we get students to do this, to do this practice. So much of your work centers on the science of learning and on educational transformation. And this transformation, I believe, can happen at so many levels uh, in an individual course, within a department, and at a bigger level across a college or university. And I'd like to start from inside out. Uh, 
about how to promote and maintain transformation at the individual level. And then maybe we can expand out to these bigger levels that I think are even that much more challenging. So the research is clear. Active learning is much more effective than, than lecture. Yet lecture is still the predominant approach used in undergraduate classrooms. I can still peer into many a classroom on many a campuses, a campus that I visit, and I see somebody at the board writing for an hour and a half on the board, and then and then that's the end. So how do we help instructors see the merits of research-backed methods, and how do we help them transition to something new, and I think without overwhelming them, uh, because it's a brave new world there. <laughs> yeah, so it's a complicated issue, and I think, I mean, I, I actually, you know, have worked at the larger scale and written this mm. whole book and improving how universities teach science. Uh, and I come away from that thinking that the problems are really at the at the organization structural level mm. uh, and that, okay, we want them to teach better. You got to think about how do you evaluate and reward people? Because I, I would argue that even though faculty think they're all doing just they're all independent doing what they're doing no they're basically doing what they get rewarded for and so mm -hmm. we have we have lousy ways of measuring teaching effectiveness you know it's almost all just based on student surveys where it's you know if you look at the research on that there's good data that that doesn't capture uh the mo use of the most effective practices. It doesn't capture actually the, <laughs> the courses that are achieving the best learning. And so, which is of course what matters. And so we have to have, uh, so I would say, you know, to affect things at the individual level, we actually really have to start higher up and you have to get, you have to do a much more thoughtful evaluation of teaching and you can need to, that tells people what they're doing good, what they're doing, how to, what they need to improve and rewarding them for, <laughs> for doing what you want. And then you have to have the kind of training in that of recognizing that, okay, teaching isn't something that you just go into a room and are good at if you got the right personality, but it's really something that we learned a whole lot about. It's pretty complicated. There's a lot that goes into teaching expertise, a lot of factors that have do right. I just like to be a physicist. There's a lot of things you have to get right um, and sort of set those expectations, but also set the, set the training for allowing, helping people get better and rewarding them when they do. You mentioned the, the the book that you wrote, and I'm I'm currently in the process of trying to get a hold of that because uh, I'd love to read that. Um, but I also I, I read your 2019 article that was called uh, "Expertise in University Teaching and the Implications for Teaching Effectiveness, Evaluation, and and Training." That that makes three of you. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a highly technical, obscure article, but it hasn't gotten the uptake I hoped it would. But anyway. <laughs> But you, you mentioned this idea of expertise and that really, I don't know, it really struck me and I've, I've just been kind of mauling it over these, you know, the, the last few days since I read it. And I, I think it's, it's certainly a piece that I think is not widely recognized that it seems that everybody who is a, a professor, for instance, made their way through the system with the old system, the way it is with lecture. And they, they succeeded as best they could in, in that, in that environment. And, and they've moved on and now become professors. And so I, I see it kind of continuing on that way without, uh, without this recognition that there is this expertise that's necessary in, in teaching. And, um, and, and I realized that, that, that I came into the teaching profession, um, by my university where I got my PhD had a, uh, a college transcript in in teaching, so I was able to take nine credits of courses, completely elective. It wasn't like my my physics program asked me to do that, but I did that, and I realized how much I learned. and And I forget that most people have not had that that experience. And um, I remember some kind of random number in the paper, something about like a minimum of, or even just 55 hours or something to that effect uh, can can produce much better results. And of course, as we learn more and more about human learning, that we're, we're going to need to develop more and more expertise over over time. But I, yeah, I've started thinking about how how is it that we can get 
that training. And I, I guess I can see why you say it's, it has to be at an institutional level. It has to be, say, I'm thinking maybe graduate programs all require something like this. Maybe they all, all graduate programs have a physics faculty member who is an expert in in training future professors to teach? I mean, is that is that one piece of this possibly? So I, I think it's really helpful to look at medicine uh, because I think there's a lot of similarities. And so, hmm. you know, if you look at medicine before 1850 or something, uh, okay, anybody who survived and got over disease and saw that their family recovered from something, they figured they were an expert on medicine. So you know, <laughs> they, they could announce they were a doctor and charge people to come in and do all kinds of cures. And, you know, and, and clearly they were right because most of the people they treated recovered, you know, and, and, and in fact, you know, bloodletting was actually the medical treatment of choice for literally 2000 years. And you mm -hmm. go back and people had these great arguments about why it was great also, because, because uh, they try it and people would get recover, you know, live if they, and so we were really kind of at that, that stage of tea in teaching where medicine was um, that, Okay, everybody figured they were an expert. There wasn't any real divisions. And it's really, uh, you know, what changed medicine was was scientific research. The fact that people started doing really, you know, careful comparisons where you didn't just have bloodletting. You compared bloodletting with, you know, antibiotics, the equivalent you saw. And, and you saw, boy, this works a lot better. And and as you develop this body of research, then you can then realize, oh, there's a bunch of things research has told us are help cure people. And we really should have doctors that start, you know, that know all that. And we should require, have some kind of standards that require people are, are using the best practices. So, you know, that's a that's a transition that medicine made and it took them you know 1850 to early 1900s to really do it but i think we're kind of in the i, I say we're kind of in the middle of that process mm -hmm. of and you know it's a big change in culture it's a big change in people's expectations and but it's going to require all of these different pieces that first there's just a recognition <laughs> that we've got data you know we've got evidence and then and then the recognition well gee if we're going to be hiring people we should be setting these different standards for them and then we should figure out how we're going to train them to meet those standards and so you know i i think it's it's a whole lot of pieces that are associated with just a a very fundamental shift in the belief system and kind of societal expectations. Just to go back to your point, I mean, you know, some of the key steps are when, inst you know, institutions, and it probably has to start with universities and then percolate all the way down, uh, when they start recognizing oh yeah, there's expertise in teaching. We're not going to hire somebody unless they have that expertise. Mm. As soon as that becomes a standard for hiring, then of course, people, graduate schools are going to say, oh, well, that's part of what we got to train our graduates for. <laughs> and then you start having courses like you're talking about. Uh, and the system just kind of smoothly changes. I have. I was chuckling inside as you were as you were saying about the practice of bloodletting, and I just I just saw a new PER bumper sticker. You know, bloodletting is equivalent to lecture. I I just I kind of have. I see that that was probably the connection there. <laughs> yeah, that was that that was my that was a soundbite I created a few years ago. That is, <laughs> you know, the that bloodletting is the pedagogical or. You know, lectures, the pedagogical equivalent, the mm. bloodletting. Yes. But <laughs> if it's become a bumper sticker, that's that's an important step. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I I've often thought about about these ideas and, and I wonder if I don't want there to be a 
a division in education, but I, f- I feel like there is room for various roles. And I'm, I begin to, I'm beginning to see this coming uh, about uh, because I've, I've been in a lecturer role at one uver- university. I'm now on a role that's considered uh, a professor of instruction. And, and these roles are always, there's always kind of sort of a, of a, a second tierness to them that it's, it's not the top tier of the research and, and teaching professor, um, but it, it's a next tier below. And, and I, I believe there could be a system where, where, where there's an equal level and where people who want to focus on research and don't necessarily want to spend as much time becoming an expert in teaching, that's, that's okay. But then there are other people who maybe don't want to do the research side of things as much. I would put myself in that category, but I would really love to continue to gain expertise in teaching and maybe even then help train others to become experts. And I, I feel like that th- there should there could be room for that. Yeah, so I would completely agree with you. And in fact, I would argue that we we did create that. I mean, the these science education initiative, which was this big project I ran at University of British Columbia with a side part at Colorado. It was really devoted towards going, you know, I worked for a lot of time doing these small scale experiments, seeing what other people were doing at the individual faculty level and course level. But then science education was an effort to really see if you could scale this up. It was an experiment in institutional change. Could you change how entire departments Mm -hmm entire science departments taught science, okay? And so that involved lots of stuff. I could go, you know, end up writing a whole book on it to explain it, because, <laughs> so I'm not gonna spend today talking about it. I'll, I'll just say that in that process, we really did kind of establish and have departments understand and and have people with that recognized expertise in teaching. And so, you know, it didn't completely get rid of the hierarchy, but it changed it dramatically from what it had been before to capture just the ideas that you have, that there's, yes, there's expertise in the science, but there's also expertise in the teaching of that science. And, and you know, you can have people who have, I mean, it doesn't work to have either completely only one or the other, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, throwing somebody in to a physics department who knows a whole lot about teaching, but not teaching physics, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, right. so there, there has to be, you know, every ultimate, you know, the ultimate perfect department has, everybody has, has, some reasonable level of expertise in both the the, the the science and the teaching of that time. But there's plenty of room for, you know, what their primary focus is and their primary contribution is. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, and, you know, my hope is in the same way, okay, we've got nuclear physicists and atomic physicists, and, you know, they're both just considered different parts of experts in different aspects, but but critical, important aspects of the subject. We can have that bringing really teaching and an understanding of the research on learning in, into the departments in the same way. I think I could easily spend all day talking about sort of this, this big level that, I mean, it's a, a fascinating conversation for me because I haven't um, a lot of my episodes have, have, have sort of focused in on sort of the smaller pieces that that teachers can do on an everyday basis, but but here we're really talking about this this big picture piece. But I do want to bring it back to that smaller picture as well, so that because yeah, I mean you know the, the big picture is things that provosts and deans need to worry about. Probably not so many of them are listening to your podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. For a regular teacher, they can't influence these high level thing so much. So yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly, there's certainly an argument to be made for it's like there at a big level, there can be things that cause change, but then there could be at the smaller level, if you get enough people doing these sorts of ideas, and then, then maybe some of those faculty members become deans and provosts, 
uh, and and begin to see that value. So, I, I guess I want to I want to dive into that for a, a little bit as well um, for maybe the rest of this episode. There are so many approaches that a teacher can adopt from little elements such as you know clicker questions here, specific other in-class activities, case studies, to of course a, a larger course methodology such as problem-based learning, modeling instruction, investigative science learning environment, peer instruction, just-in-time teaching, just to rattle off a few, uh, and whether to maybe use a studio or scale-up classroom. So from your faculty webpage, I see that you continue to teach an introductory physics course uh, each year. And I'm interested to learn what format and methodologies you have adopted for your intro class and why you personally focus on those. So, you know, I've spent a long time trying to sort through these different things and what they meant. And, you know, it did take me a long, you know, and it took sort of a physics approach of, okay, is there an underlying principle here that that works? And so I, I think there is a basic underlying principle. And then I take and kind of within the context of the student population, uh, which includes that how big the class is and now level of okay of kind of taking and mapping that principle into it and so you know I think there's a there's a series of three papers that two of my two I'm a co yeah two I'm a co-author on the third I'm not a co-author on but I I have a lot to do with getting it done and they're there's uh, one with uh, Louis Delorier, you mentioned our science paper on improved learning in a large introductory physics course. There's another one which, which is on uh, with David Jones and it's in the physical review, physics education research on transforming uh, an advanced optics course. Uh, and it's really the advanced optics plays very little part in it. It's it's mm-hmm. how you, it's the concept of how do you go about transforming you know research based learning of an advanced undergraduate physics course, and then the third is one that's re- recently come out uh, in the uh, American Journal of Physics by Peter Lepage on something titled like active learning and teaching quantum field theory. So it's the most Mm -hmm. advanced graduate course. But in fact, all of these courses, you know, they have different sizes, very different populations are being taught by the exact same set of principles. uh, And they all turned out very, very successfully and, Mm -hmm. you know, greatly improved measures of learning. And those principles are first this idea of okay you want students to be able to make decisions and you structure the problem solving that students are in class they're sort of practicing problem solving in in the physics at the right Mm -hmm. level right context uh where uh and they're they're given this problem task and it's broken down into pieces that they work through they work you know there's some individual work but there's working in small groups being monitored by the instructor uh, and they'll work for you know five or ten minutes and then uh, while the instructor's sort of monitoring those those things of how they're doing and then he'll pull the whole class together to sort of you know answer questions and give general feedback and bring everybody sort of make sure everybody's kind of the same page and then they'll continue working through the activities Uh, and so you know in a class of the introductory class of 300 students uh, that task might be answering uh, some clicker questions or some some worksheets and just talking with each other neighbors but still the same the same mental processes are going on of practicing the thinking you want them to do monitoring that giving timely feedback and then letting them go back to practicing Mm -hmm. Uh, and the same approach in the quantum field theory class works and you know and it works just as well 
So, you know, that's kind of a way of laying out the, how this applies. But at Stanford in the physics department, there's been a number of faculty who are kind of very receptive to this. And they've really taken that approach. And now most of the thing is like eight, eight courses in the physics major sequence from second year on up have now been are now being taught just in this in this same fashion. So that's just an argument that, yeah, it really does work. Uh, you know, the 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 basic approach works and it's been quite successful and half students and faculty both like all the way up the sequence. So it's not something that's fundamentally different in the first year versus an advanced physics class. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, no, that's great to hear. So a, a piece that you were, um, that I really see in here, there's, there's always this tension. There's this tension between how much gets covered in class and um, instead using that, that time to do this deliberate practice. And, and almost every faculty member, including myself at times, is is so it's like I can't give this topic up. I can't give this topic up. And in order to take that time in class to practice, I think there do have to be uh, there have to be changes in how much gets covered. So what what would you say to a faculty member who says, no, I really I have to cover all these. I, I can't give that time away. When what I tell them is, well, they could do what I started. You know what I did when I really started thinking about these things is. I started actually measuring at the end of class what students were actually taking away from <laughs> from what I'd covered. And, you know, once you find out that it's really close to zero, probably with the <laughs> noise, then it really starts, you know, when you actually look at the data rather than, well, I learned a lot from telling them this, <laughs> you look at, well, what did they really learn? It really starts to change your perspective on what you cover because you realize you're spending a whole lot of time just up there talking and total, totally waste of time. And, you know, in this, if you look at our the data in the Delorier science paper, uh, you know, if somebody rated as a good lecture and gosh, it's so close to zero what the students actually mm. took away from lecture. And, and you know, like I say, it's not that person was unique and bad. I got, sadly, data from my own classes from 35 years ago that uh, looked not so different. So, you know, it's, it's just so easy to fool yourself as to what students are learning from your really thoughtful, carefully prepared, <laughs> you know, and it, boy, you're processing the ideas so well, how can they not be learning from that? But, you know, so you got to take, got to be scientific about it saying, well, no, maybe I really need to, to test what they're learning. And that really shows you that <laughs> how, how pointless it is to cover that stuff. Another piece I'd I'd like to to talk about a little bit is the laboratory aspect, um, because a lot of what you talked about doesn't really you know it's not something that the laboratory piece would would do. And in fact, I, I'm I'm remembering one of the titles in your paper was "We Can Do Better." So what is what have you learned about laboratory the laboratory piece of physics at this point, and and what what can we do to make that a better piece? Uh, so, you know, now we're getting really into bloodletting territory. <laughs> you know, the, the what students learn from instructional labs was really something that had not been looked at much at all until I and Natasha Holmes and uh, people she worked with started really probing, okay, what are students learning from the laboratory experience? and it was really almost nothing. Uh, and, you know, and you, you started understanding that people are making some fundamental assumptions about what learning happens there. And, and the assumption that kind of by recreating the, recreating the scientific process, people are going to learn something. And, and it's just, that's just fundamentally wrong. And we, you know, dug into this more and looked at, 
what's the thinking that a student's actually doing? <laughs> and what's the, because mm -hmm. with this idea that, well, what they learn is what they mentally practice. So then you start looking at what are they really thinking during the completion of instructional labs? And it's, it's very, very limited. And it really doesn't incorporate, doesn't cover all of the things, any of the things people hoped that people learn from a laboratory experience. And all that thinking really happens when people are designing, which the students aren't doing, of course, designing the lab. And so, so we see that in, under, in, a, in a reasonably good undergraduate research experience, or which is also fa uh, fairly similar to a good project lab experience, the kinds of thinking and getting back to problem-solving decisions and that in, and how they're calling on physics knowledge to make those decisions in the, those kind of undergraduate research or or problem uh, project where it's much more authentic type. It's just a completely different mental processes going on and therefore a completely different learning. Uh, you know so. We have really good data. I mean, you know, tiny error bars, <laughs> frighteningly small error bars, saying the learning of physics content from instruction, introductory instructional labs is zero. Uh, and that's, you know, or really, really close to zero with those small error bars. It That actually doesn't surprise me all, all that much. What, um, but there must be, I'm getting of like something like aisle or modeling instruction. Is that is that something that's better? Yeah, much better. Those are things. Yeah, those are things where you have them students doing a whole lot more thinking, a whole lot more decision making. Uh, you know, and doing the thinking uh, that matches the thinking that involved in doing real physics. So, but you know. Back to your point about it doesn't surprise you. I mean, it may not surprise you, but it should horrify you. I yeah. mean, if you think about the, the mm -hmm. especially if you're going down into the high school level, the amount of resources, both, you know, dollars and facilities and student and instructor time that go into these labs the fact that they're providing no value. I mean, this is, you know, we're throwing away essentially billions of education dollars mm -hmm. a year uh, on something that for no function. And so I, you know, to me, it's kind of horrifying <laughs> to recognize that these aren't just ineffective. They're just not at all. So anyway, I hope your listeners <laughs> pay attention flat to thinking about gosh, can't we do something much better with these resources? And as you say, there are ways to do it better, uh, but they're not used very widely. Well, and, and it sounds like this is this is maybe a question that's in its early stages in, in physics education research, that there's there's still more to be learned about what, what maybe more of a project-based lab might look like, maybe having instead of 10 labs to go with your 14 week semester, maybe there's there's three larger projects that span over multiple weeks that, that you gain a lot of depth. Yeah, one of, the, one of the most basic features that we see that's critical in this. And of course it's, it's, it's completely normal in real physics research, but it needs to be in court, but not in instructional labs. The idea of iteration that you, do things they don't work <laughs> and you then think about why they don't work and you go back and do them again better and under and make progress and maybe you have to iterate even a third time uh, on them but you know you look at the standard lab and of course the same reason you say oh but if they go back and do this lab three times we can't cover this you know the 11 different topics that we have them do experiments on and uh, so we want to make sure they can rush through those as rapidly as possible, but yeah, they get through all those, but they don't learn anything. Whereas the iteration, the, the time, uh, and opportunity to go back and 
essentially learn from your mistakes. That's where all the learning happens. And that's really a critical element. of this. Well, and that's exactly what you were saying with the with the classroom portion as well, you know, give students deliberate practice, then they get feedback, and then they practice again. Yeah. And so it's simple. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it is, but it's just very different way of thinking. Uh, you know, I, I think it goes back to the to a difference in the basic paradigm of learning. I think that the old fashioned and still, you know, existing paradigm learning is you got a brain, it's a fixed thing, it doesn't change. And what the education is just putting edu information into that fixed brain, okay? But what we know now is not that idea of a fixed brain is just completely wrong and, you know, People don't realize it because they don't have a reference for their brain. <laughs> you know, they need a standard reference brain to care. They see <laughs> their brains are changing dramatically and brain, you know, now brain imaging can show this too, mm -hmm. which is that. And so the, the correct and different paradigm learning is that the brain is changing through the mental activities it's doing. And so if it's thinking really hard about how to do things and practicing solving certain kinds of problems the neurons hook up in different ways and those new you know rewired neurons give the brain new capabilities and the so the learning process is really the development or rewiring of the brain in a more effective mm -hmm. way and that's what takes this kind of practice and feedback and so you know very very analogous to okay if i want to build up a muscle i got to use the right muscle i got to do it strenuously and i got to do it repeatedly and the muscle responds and the brain also responds but that's you know so fundamentally i think these these whole issues about how and why you teach go to what one's basic paradigm of learning is and Hopefully, as people can understand more that you're changing, you need to be changing the brain and how to change the brain uh, and that you're developing capabilities, you're not providing information ultimately, that's kind of where you make progress. What are some of the resources that you might recommend for a new faculty member or a new high school teacher just getting started or, or maybe an experienced teacher who is ready to try something new? And this could be anything from, say, a workshop that they could do, videos, books, articles, anything. I don't really know what's the most effective thing. I mean, clearly the the new faculty workshop that the a, APT and Yes, APS is involved. That's clearly the you know the the best existing thing, and I'd say it's a real credit to our profession that we have that. That mm -hmm. other you know chemists and biologists are only starting to think about these things, doing these things. Um, but um, you know, in, in fairness, I I don't have a kind of you know primary thing. I I teach a class on this. I do, I run workshops for developing, but and I have a whole bunch of readings for that that I give people and and that uh, tailored to it. But I'm not. I wouldn't guarantee those are the the best thing. But well, okay, no, I I should give you know the people read a him read and process and apply a bunch of different things in in this. But uh, there are two that I you know kind of leading things um where are they here one of yeah <laughs> you can see i keep them within arm's length but all oh, time. nice <laughs> so, so uh one is the the abcs of how we learn mm -hmm. uh, and it's by dan schwartz and co-authors and dan is a uh cognitive psychologist and so this is really getting it's a very readable, popularized version of basic principles of learning that cognitive from cognitive psychology, and that's sort of the all the underlying stuff I've been talking about. That mm -hmm. then, uh, and then this the book How Learning Works um, is a is a general reference, sort of more 
takes it to the level of applying these principles in teaching across different uh, sections. The downside of it, it it's uh, kind of intended for all college teachers, regardless of discipline. But mm. since most of the research is in science and physics, <laughs> sort of skewed a little more towards that, and uh, you know, but it's not it's not the ideal thing for a physics teacher because it's also worrying about teaching reading and so on. But but it it is a, a good reference. I and I use a lot for helping people think how to apply these principles in the classroom and, and a lot of the, the challenges and issues that come up and some ways to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the the other thing is the the CWSEI website that's the, mm -hmm. that at UBC uh, is uh, we have developed a whole lot of resources for instructors. If you go into the resources for instructors part of, of you know, specific one or two page guides, most of them I wrote, but others, some others, uh, of how to implement particular things in a class and in teaching kind of the specific implementation thing. So that's another resource that is helpful for people. No, and I, I've checked out that website, uh, and there's a lot of great re resources there. And um, everything you mentioned, including some of the papers you mentioned earlier, I'll definitely link in the in the show notes uh, so that people can go check those out uh, when okay. when they've got time. It, August is here, so that means we're all thinking about the the syllabus and how is it that we're gonna how we're we gonna go about it this year. Um, yeah. So get think about what decisions you want those students to learn to make. <laughs> Well, to wrap up our conversation, um, I'd love you to share any final thoughts you might have or any action steps our listeners could take right now. Like I say, the actions was starting with really thinking carefully about the learning goals or outcomes you want for those students where you're focusing on the kind of operational, you know, operational issues of the decisions they're going to make and how they can take away from this class things that will help them make better decisions, whether it's about, you know, their personal life and health choices, public policy, uh, you know, issues, et, et cetera. Well, Carl, thank you so much for taking the, the time with me today to, to speak about some of these ideas. This has been a very impactful conversation for me, just thinking about some of these, these big level pieces and how at the core, they're, they're very simple ideas that, that we can apply immediately, really. <laughs> I'm laughing because, you know, there's simple ideas that took me 30 years to realize and understand they were simple, you know, kind of simple ideas like the ones that took, you know, Newton working off of Galileo took a few hundred years to work too. Uh, but uh, they're, they're simple in some ways, but they're profound in others, I think. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> Pleasure. Let me say it again. Wow. Just wow. I had no idea how it would feel to speak with an intellectual giant. That's the phrase that struck me as soon as the call ended. On the one hand, what he's saying is so profound that it's actually ridiculously simple. Maybe not simple to enact. The practice feedback practice model takes training. It takes teaching expertise. But to hear him describe it, it feels simple even obvious in hindsight. Yet, as Carl said, it took 30 years of research to distill down to these points. And of course, this isn't the end of the story. We are still a long ways from a complete understanding of how humans learn. And within our current framework, we all have skills and expertise to gain as we strive to be more effective and inspiring educators. I think teaching may fall within the realm of simple, but not easy. A great example of this is cooking. My wife has shared recipes with me that she says are simple. So I go to make it, and it's a lot of chopping, and then more chopping, and then cooking different veggies at different times, and I'm finally done two and a half hours later, and I say, you call that simple? And yes, she says, but it does take time and effort. And she's absolutely right. The framework and fundamentals of the recipe are actually quite simple. All I have to do are put in the time and the effort, and out comes a delicious, healthy meal. This practice feedback practice framework that Carl suggests is quite simple, 
but it will take time and effort on the part of the student and on the part of the teacher. No bloodletting, just the sweat of effort. Which actually reminds me of a quote that I believe comes from an article that a previous Physics Alive guest, Rhett Elaine, wrote. Confusion is the sweat of learning. Okay, let's wrap this up for today. You can find links to the journal articles and books referenced today in the episode, as well as many quotes, in the show notes. Just scroll down to your podcast app or go to physicsalive.com carl. While you're at the website, you can leave questions and reflections in the comment box at the bottom of the page. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter, and you can reach me there or at brad at physicsalive.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. These ratings help put Physics Alive on the radar so that other educators can find it. I also want to share that I have a Patreon page. Producing a podcast is great fun. I love speaking with guests, and this way of serving the physics community fits well with my talents and interests. But producing podcast content is time-consuming and requires fees to maintain a website and podcast hosting services and requires equipment to produce great audio. If you find this podcast valuable, and if you have the means to help support the show, then please consider visiting patreon.com slash physicsalive. Support tiers start at $2 per month, with higher tiers available for individuals and departments as resources permit. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired. Today's action step, answer the question, what can I do to help bring on the new teaching paradigm? Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you ever embrace the simple and profound, and be well.